So for this episode, I spoke with Dr. Aaron Himes. Dr. Himes currently serves as Assistant Professor of Counseling and leads the Addictions Counseling Concentration in Milligan's Counseling Program. He is a licensed professional counselor and mental health service provider, a board-approved clinical supervisor, a certified master's addictions counselor, and he has over a decade of experience in working in this field. I hope you enjoy hearing his journey and hearing a bit about what it's like to work with individuals who are struggling with addiction. If you would like to learn more about this area, please feel free to reach out to Dr. Hines. Could you talk a little bit about what you're doing now and what you were doing? You've not been doing it very long. So what you've been, you, what you were doing right before you came to Milligan. All right. So what I'm doing at Milligan, I just joined the counseling program, the master's program faculty. And specifically, I mean, I'll be teaching multiple master's level classes in counseling, but my focus is really developing the addictions concentration for the master's program. So I have, I'm a licensed professional counselor um, in the state of Tennessee. I at one point was licensed in both Virginia and Tennessee, but I don't really like to pay for both of those licenses. So I chose Tennessee um, and I have an addiction specialty. So I'm a clinical mental health person with a specialization in addiction. So this was actually perfect for my passion area of counseling um, and being a therapist and for education because quite frankly, these are the folks who need people that really know what they're doing mm -hmm. and the way our system has, has put people in front of them is we put warm bodies that have some training but not the training that they need to necessarily work with this particular population. Yeah. So what led me here, um, for the previous two years, I was on faculty at ETSU with the um, family medicine department in the Quillen College of Medicine. So my role within that was as a professor, an assistant professor, and also the director of the behavioral health program. So I had three clinics that I was directing clinical behavioral health services over, as well as developing an entire behavioral health curriculum for the family medicine residency program. So you can imagine that was a lot of fun. Yeah. This is a smaller portion of what I did there, which makes it seem maybe, it may be fooling me into thinking that this is more manageable. <laughs> <laughs> well, still our game. <laughs> right? So I've, I've had, I've probably worked in the field of counseling for 10, give or take 10 years okay. um, in multiple roles. I've worked with kids. I've worked in addictions. I've tried to bring families back together. I've done a little bit of everything. And then this is my fifth year in academia as a professor. I have been with Lindsay Wilson College before in their master's and doc programs and then ETSU and now have landed at home at, at Milligan and I'm excited about that. So can you talk a little bit about like your, let's back up to like your undergrad and you know did you know at you know 18, 19, 20 years old that you wanted to do counseling or you know what what's what has the path look like from that point to now? So I, I went into undergrad as a psych major. Okay. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something psychology related. Initially, what I wanted to do was be a, I wanted to be a, an FBI profiler, like lots of other people. I'm really enamored with the thinking of serial killers, which you got to be careful who you say that to. Right. Really strange. Um, 
but then as I got into it, I really liked the idea of really being more on the therapy helping side of things, which led me to a, a master's degree in counseling, which I gotta be honest with you, I didn't see coming. It's one of those things where God was like, hey, check this out. This is where I think you need to be. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, undergrad was interesting because I, I switched majors one time and mm -hmm. unsurprisingly I switched to criminal justice and decided, no, that's not really where I wanna be. I really like the counseling side of things better than I did that particular side of things. So. Mm -hmm. That's where I started. And then did you go straight into your grad program? So I did. I finished up my bachelor's, went straight into my master's program. I did take time to get licensed and get professional experience in between my master's degree and going on to get my PhD, which I gotcha. think is, for me, was very important um, yeah. because I wanted to I was working in the field, the mental health field, while I while I attained my master's. Yeah. But not obviously at a master's level. So I had my foot in the door, had a salary, had benefits. Why give that up until I knew why I wanted to get a PhD? Sure. That sounds wise. <laughs> where where did you go? Where did your master's and your doctorate come from? So my master's is from Lindsay Wilson College. Okay. Um, and my doctorate is from UNC Charlotte. Okay. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I mean, primarily wanted to talk to you about just your work with addiction and just what that, what that is like. Um, every year when I've taught this class before, I, I try and get a sense, once they get registered, I try and get a sense from the ones who are registered what they're interested in. And addiction has come up at least once almost every time. Um, and I, I don't know if you know this about me, I don't know why you would. Um, I got my counseling degree at ETSU. And as part of that, I did very, very little minimal work, practicum work um, at Buffalo Ridge, right? Because I was, yeah, um, I forgot the name of the place. But, and that, that told me a lot that I did not want to work with, with people struggling with addiction. Um, <laughs> and not because anything wrong with that population, but that it, it, it's its own brand of, hard. Um, counseling in general can be hard, but that is a, that's a whole different taste of hard. So um, yeah, I guess, could you talk about your experience, like how you got into that? What about it? You, what, what kept you in it for, for a while and just go from there. So I, I'm one of those people that I refer to as being uniquely qualified for this job because I'm, I'm a person in recovery myself and I've been okay. in recovery for I don't know, 12, 14 years, somewhere in that range. So that was one of the things that brought me in mm -hmm. or piqued my interest. But then I went on to get this specialized training. What I love about it is it's the same thing, but it's a different thing every single day. Oh, yeah. Right? Like the stories a lot of the time remain the same. The faces change. Um, I cut my teeth in working in residential treatment and it was one of the most wonderful places that I have ever worked. Not because it was full of rainbows and sunshine, but because it was full of really sick people and it was always something new mm -hmm. and people kind of seeing the light turn on on occasion, which is why you stay in it. 
Um, I've told lots of my students and everybody else, if you want to be in this field, if you're going to be in the psychology field, the counseling field, anything like that, this is a population you will work with. Oh, yeah. There's, there's no way around it, right? Like right. Kids are using or starting to experiment at younger and younger ages. So if you're going to be a school counselor or a school psychologist, you're going to see this. If you're going to work in a community, you're going to see this. So why not get some education about it so mm -hmm. that you're not afraid of it or that you don't carry some of the stigmas that we all have right. into sessions with these folks because they're actually quite amazing people from yeah. a survival standpoint. Right? Oh, yeah. They, they can do lots of really good things if given the opportunity. Um, it's, it's the group that I have always felt the most passion to work with. Um, because I've, you know, having been through it myself, I've had a lot of really stellar therapists and I've had some really terrible ones. Um, and through that, I wanted to be on the side of these were the folks that I want to be like the folks that were able to help me kind of get out of the, the, the gutter. Yeah. Um, and I want to train other people to be able to see more than just the addiction side of things, to be able to see the person that's actually there rather than the substances or the addictive behaviors that they're engaging in. Yeah. Do you think that's the biggest, you, you mentioned the stigma, and I think that even even people in in mental health, if they're not working a lot with people with addictions, or even, you know, if they're heading into that career, that stigma, as much as we're fighting stigma about mental health in general, I think stigma of addiction probably is there. Um, do you think that that's one of the bigger, I guess, misconceptions that you that people have about people, mental health professionals that are working with people struggling with addiction is just still having that stigma. And, and I guess also like, you know, you mentioned having some terrible therapists. Is that part of what made them terrible? You know, that's a really good question because I've, I've wondered that at times, what was it about them that made it just not click? And yeah. I think some of it, I think it's a couple of different things. And I'll try to be careful how I talk about these, but I don't know that there's any real way to be careful. One, I think some of them, some of my therapists having been people in recovery as well, mm -hmm. were still working on them rather than me. So they were still working on them. They just were doing it through me and had no idea that that was even happening, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and the second thing is that sti the stigma point of view. And I think some of that goes to there are multiple doors for people to get into recovery. It doesn't always have to be abstinence based. It doesn't always have to be just these, I don't know, the, the abstinence based thing, I think, is the one that got me the most often because I view change in a very different way that anything that's different is hopefully anything different and positive is change. Now, ultimately, I would love for people to, to get to a place where they are abstaining from things that they're using, but I also view harm reduction and things like that as applicable and appropriate evidence-based treatments, right? And some of the folks that, that I didn't really click well with were basically the ones that said, you just have to stop doing all of it, right? Like, you got to stop all of it right now that never really took into account the relationships with family members and how they played a role in my recovery and how they played a role in helping draw boundaries that made it more individualized, made it more my problem to deal with, made it more abstinence based. And those are all very stigmatizing point of views. Yeah. Okay. So what, when you were working um, primarily, when you were primarily, I guess, working with, with folks struggling with addiction, what did that look like from like, 
Fred you for a day-to-day -day basis? Um, it depends on the setting. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. So when I was in residential, I basically had an open door policy. You know, as people needed to come and speak with me, you know, we're all in the same location anyway, come and speak with me. But I also facilitated a ton of therapeutic groups. That's a huge component of addiction treatment is they can be manualized groups, they can be psychoeducational groups, a combination of those things, process groups. You'll learn about all this stuff, so don't freak out. <laughs> um, that, that's for all the students. Don't freak out when you hear all these words. Um, when I worked, when I did some contract work with probation and parole, it was very different because at that point I was involved in the drug court process, which is great, but it's a very different animal than just being in a community mental health center because oftentimes the clients are going to view you as part of the, the, the criminal justice system as opposed yeah. to a part of the, being the treatment provider. So those two settings are, are very different. And then when I was the lead counselor for a medication assisted treatment program, that brings about its, its own kind of issues where I was in any given day seeing 10 to 12 clients for individual settings uh, sessions as long as well as running one to two groups that day. Um, and could even be groups where family members came in to get some education and things like that. So, you know, it's a combination of individual. It's a combination of, of group. It's, there's just, it depends on the setting. It depends on who you, who you were identified as being a provider for, I guess is the way to say that. Because I spent a lot of time when I was with contracted in with probation and parole, convincing the clients that I was not the enemy, that I was hopefully a part of their treatment and solution. And I'm sure that that was an uphill battle, especially depending on the extent of their experience working with the criminal justice system prior. I'm sure that that was a big challenge. Yeah, because, you know, their fear, and rightfully so, was you're going to do whatever my PO tells you to do. And then they quickly figured out that when it came to treatment, I did whatever my recommendation was, not what theirs was. But that's even a delicate balance because now you have to bridge those gaps to very right. different viewpoints working with the same person. Yeah. And, you know, I know it's, it's hard enough sometimes developing rapport with a new client, but especially if they view that you're, you know, basically another member of law enforcement, even though you're not, um, right. Yeah, you're the, you're the counseling arm of law enforcement, which right. doesn't necessarily mean that you are here for our benefit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of them viewed it as you're, you're a person that's there so they can check off another box Correct. along the way. Well, and another part of it was they, got, they were afraid to say anything for fear yeah. of it being reported back to their PO. Yeah. Right, and that was the biggest Understandably hurdle. so. A absolutely, and that was one of the biggest hurdles to cross was no confidentiality still exists in this relationship, right? Yeah. Like, so that was the biggest hurdle to cross. And once you, once you gain some trust, then it, you know, you could actually engage in treatment and, and things started to t take a different turn. Yeah. I've done that work with you, like, you know, cause I, I know from my limited, like official counseling experience, um, you know, you always have to give that disclaimer of, unless you're basically subpoenaed in a court of law, like, especially working with this population, what does that look like? And I guess what were the circumstances in which you did have to 
break that confidentiality because of court appearances. Yeah, so, or whatever. so fortunately for me in that situation, the only time I really had to break confidentiality was if it was deemed harm to self or harm to others, which is really about the only time I do anyway. Right. Um, because they were being screened, urine screened, every time they came into the probation office or every time they came in to see us, that wasn't an issue I really had to deal with. Gotcha. Which was great, because I think that's a different hurdle. Um, you know, some of the, there's CFR 42, which pertains specifically to addictions treatment. And, and we'll, I try to cover that in class because it's such an important thing where federal money's attached to addiction treatment, like there's a whole different confidentiality piece that goes specific to addiction stuff that we could spend an entire two hour conversation on. Um, so most often it was, unless it was harm to self, harm to others, I pretty much kept it as confidential with subpoenas because I'm glad you brought that up. People freak out when they get a subpoena, mm -hmm. especially a subpoena for records, but a subpoena for records doesn't mean you just hand everything over. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> it means you go to your lawyer first off and say, what are they really requesting? Because most often they're going to be requesting like progress notes, which are very different from maybe the psychotherapy notes that you're keeping. Gotcha. You give all of those things and you've immediately broken HIPAA and confidentiality, even if you never meant to. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, it's so a what? Game, isn't it? You what? <laughs> it's a fun game, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, as if uh, documentation isn't tedious enough, you've got to keep that in mind too. Yeah, right. Um, so what, what for you and in general, would you say is the most challenging part of working with this group? I mean, I know what little, with again, what little experience I had, the challenges I saw, um, but what, what, do, what did you experience? What do you see your students experiencing? I think the, the biggest thing is autonomy. And yeah. what I mean by that is we, it, it, it's almost like leading a horse to water, that kind of thing. But you got to remember that just the same as we are given options of making decisions and you can choose to do this or you can choose to do that and there are consequences that are come with come with making certain decisions. The same is true for our clients, right? Like, especially the ones that were on probation and parole. I think one of the things that helped me to be able to build rapport with them was I'm not going to just tell on you like you have the opportunity the judge gave you an opportunity to either participate in this program or go to jail if you go to jail i'm not going to judge you for it that's a decision you get to make maybe it is easier to go to jail than yeah. it is to participate in a program that's asking you to change everything in your life right maybe it is easier to choose these other things versus choosing necessarily to to do the things that are required to get into recovery i can't judge somebody on that it's a decision that they get to make and i'm very aware that that is their decision while i may disagree with it it's their decision it's just, it's the same as if i don't believe in medications as being an alternative for my clients it's not my job to prevent them from getting a medication evaluation right like that doesn't that's not my thing it's about them yeah. So remembering that these folks are able to make their own decisions and, and deal with the consequences of those decisions and that our job is to really help them kind of weigh out mm -hmm. what, what's the positive and negative of all the, the sides of the decisions that you have to make. I think that people really, the clients that I've worked with have really respected that piece. Um, 
then I give them the freedom to be able to say, hey, what I want for you isn't necessarily what you want for you. Let's talk about that because that's what's the important piece, right? Like that's how we're going to work together to get you moving in a different direction. If all I'm trying to do is apply what I think, I don't know your life, <laughs> number right. one, right? So the best decision I might make for me might be a terrible one for you. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's a very freeing thing to keep in mind for anybody that's working in any kind of counseling or helping profession, not just counseling and working with people with addictions, but just in general, like we, we can't, can't control what they're going to do. And yeah, keeping that perspective of where, where you've been and what your views are, are not hardly ever going to completely align with someone else's and yeah. And I, that's a, I think that's a good, if nothing else, self-preservation yeah. tactic. I think one of the other really important things that I had to come to terms with um, is in specifically in addictions work. If you, if you get better and you're doing well and you've moved into recovery, there's a high likelihood that I will not see you again. Yeah. If you go back to using, there's a high likelihood I might not see you again, right? Like, you can end up in the system, you can end up dead, you can end up debilitating yourself to a point that we never cross paths again. So I had to figure that out really early on that every encounter that I have with a client could be the last encounter that I have with that client. And if they don't come back, it doesn't mean that I was a bad therapist. It might mean that maybe they got what they needed and they moved on because that actually does happen maybe they went back to using because they just weren't in a place where whatever they were using to take care of, maybe it was just too big of a bear for them to deal with at that time. So I think that helped for me to be able to sit back and say, I'm doing the best I can within my abilities with every one of my clients. But at the end of the day, I also recognize that they may not show back up and it could yeah. be for a multitude of reasons that doesn't make me a bad therapist as much as maybe it's just the way things kind of happen within this field. Yeah. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about like what you did or do um, for your own, I guess, self-care? That's our, that's our golden ticket term right yeah. there, but especially with working with this population, giving especially I think where you come from in that, like, how did you take care of yourself to make sure that you weren't wearing yourself too thin? Well, one, kind of what I said earlier, like, I didn't get in this to heal me. I got in it to help others heal. Um, I do my healing on my own in a different yeah. way. And I'm fortunate enough that I've had some people help me with that. Um, I do a lot of, of running and lifting weights and kayaking and biking and hanging out with my family. Um, yep. I recognize that when I, when I leave, I have to disconnect and give the energy that, to the people that need it as much, if not more, and deserve it, which mm -hmm. are my family. That yeah. took me a few years to realize. Um, in the beginning of my days of counseling, I did exactly what most counselors do, which is you give everything you have emotionally, spiritually, physically, everything. And then you kind of go home and melt into the floor like you're this big lump of chocolate. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're not giving the things that you need to the folks that are important in your life. 
And all of a sudden it clicked with me that that is what I was doing. I wasn't doing any self-care. I wasn't doing anything and I wasn't going to remain in the field unless I changed things. So I started to devote more time. I left work at work and started to devote more time to exercising to relieve stress and being present with my wife and with my children because they deserve that. Um, and sometimes they had to point that out to me and I, I'm, I'm glad that they're able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's helpful when those that live with us are able and willing to to advocate for that. That's that's definitely a good thing. So I had to do that as a faculty member too. I remember yeah. at one point going, "You're answering to, uh, you're answering emails 24 hours a day. Yeah. Like, what are you doing?" And I went, "Oh, oh yeah, you're right. It's a good thing you're a lot smarter than me." <laughs> <laughs> um. So you've moved, you know, you've moved through like clinical work into academia. Do you have something else that you want to be able to experience at some point along the line in your career? Um, you know, the one thing that I feel like I'm not as engaged in as I would like to be is organized counseling and being more on the side of policy making and things along those lines doing more lobbying work, advocating for our profession and the folks that need our services. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I just have no idea. It's, it's, that, it's that hard conversation in my head of, if I don't do it, I never will, but I don't have the time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't like complain about some of the directions that the field's going if I'm not willing to engage in that process, right? <laughs> so that's <laughs> one of the areas that as I, as my children get older, as yeah. I continue to do things, I'd like to be able to engage in in a different way. I'd also really like to be able to sit back one day and say, wow, we've got an amazing substance use disorder addictions treatment. We've got a lot of folks around that are really well trained to provide that service. And I hope I'm a part of their training and giving them good training because I know that there are a heck of a lot of other people in this area that know what they're doing and what they're talking about and yeah. also trying to figure out how do I get them in front of those people as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like you're positioned pretty well to be a part of that um, with this, with this new um, concentration in our counseling program. I was very excited when they, when they announced that they were adding that because I think that's, obviously a very big need here in this area yeah. especially so um i'm grateful for that i'm grateful milligan made that decision i'm grateful that you're you're here to help well, lead the way and develop that i'm hoping that god will help me to work myself out of a job yeah right like that's my goal every single day is for me to not be needed in addictions work and if i'm able to do that amazing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't see it happening i told somebody the other day that you know, the job market for counseling, for psychology, for addictions work is going to be as robust as it's ever been. Because when you see things at the beginning of a pandemic that say liquor stores are an essential business and we're right. going to those open simply because we're trying to protect, protect our emergency rooms from dealing for folks that are going into withdrawal. Yep. That's really telling as to where we are and what yeah. the is going to be coming out of whatever we come out of. Yeah. So. Yeah, I had that thought back in, in March when they were deciding what was and what wasn't an essential business. So, yeah. 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 Um, well, I've got one more question I'm asking everyone else for you. But before I ask that, I want to see if you have any other 
pearls of wisdom that you want to pass along to students that might be considering getting into this line of work? Just believe in people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's, that's one of the hardest things is <laughs> always be you, but sometimes you got to check some of your stuff and leave it at the door, right? Like, okay. If you go in with a preconceived notion and a label and a stigmatizing view, you will never see that person for anything other than that. And while you may disagree with the behaviors and some of the things that they've done, our job is to try to help, right? There's nothing that we can say that will make them beat themselves up or feel more guilt or shame than they're already making themselves feel. Yeah. I, I try to, I want to be more on the positive side of change. Yep. So just things to think about. You know, people end up with me in class, they'll hear this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so my last, my last question for you, if you could go back to 18, 19, 20 year old Aaron, what, what advice would you give him? I would tell him to listen to people who were older than him, to listen to the adults more than he did because they actually did know what they were talking about. Right, like it, I'd probably still end up making some of the decisions that oh, sure. I made. Yeah. But I think sometimes just pausing and not hearing them, but actually listening to them would have made a world of difference. Yeah. I think we all probably need to tell our 18, 19, 20 year old selves that. <laughs> I'd probably also tell him that, hey, you know that thing you want to do? Don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk with me about this and give some insight into what it's like to work with the addictions side of counseling. Um, I definitely, like I said, I, I gained a great appreciation for that line of work with my limited experience in my practicum. Um, that really, that experience really opened my eyes to a world that I, I think I knew existed, but had never in any way been in um and so to be able to see that and just see kind of like you said like the people behind this that stigma um it I, i'll always i think remember that and carry that with me even if i'm not doing that work and i think you've made a very good point earlier too of um whether you intentionally seek it out and to work in your if you're going to be working in a helping profession you're going to be working in some ways with addiction at some point and uh, it it's unavoidable. You're right. It touches everybody, it does. Um, whether we want to admit it or not, it, it touches everybody. And that's part of where some of those belief systems, morals, stigmatized views start to come in. Yeah. Uh, and it is what it is. I don't judge anybody for it. It just, those things are there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it and have thank a great rest of your day and I, I hope it was worthwhile i hope people get something out of it and let me know how else i can help i'll be more than happy to do it again this recording is a production of the milligan university faculty resource room thank you for listening